This is Morning in America's Nick Smith, and I'm so happy you're joining me for this edition of In the Mix. Here at News Nation, we cover a lot of news, but there are always a few stories that I think need a little more attention. And you know me, I always have more thoughts than we actually have time for on Morning in America. So here is where I share those with you, as well as extra content that didn't make the cut during our live show. So welcome to In the Mix with Nick Smith. Hey, hey, it's time for In the Mix once again. Can I just tell you how much I've enjoyed the feedback and the uh, positive response and the downloads and the downloads? You know, they've been able to track the traction we've been getting. We as in because nobody does it alone. Like I do the podcast, but I have a producer who helps assemble it. Shout out to Cynthia. And then I have camera guys who help me film my segments. Shout out to Mike, Napoleon, um, Kevin, uh, Mark, uh, 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 Steve, uh, David, and uh, who else am I forgetting? Oh, we can't forget Corey. So all of these guys help me shoot my things. Uh, there's also Chris. Uh, so they help me shoot my things. Uh, then there are the editors, Miss Jackson, Daniel, um, Luke, who put it together. So they help to put my stories together. The other group helps to shoot it. Um, another team lights me. And then Cynthia says, you know what? Let's take the best of the best, Nick, and put it all together. And then that's how we come up with what's in the mix. And then every time I think we may have it all done, Something else will happen. We say, oh, no, no, no. We've got to freshen this up. we got to add this because this was too funny or this was too good or too interesting or something that, as Arsenio Hall used to say, any of y'all old, old enough to remember Arsenio Hall? I'll have one of those things to make you go, hmm. Arsenio Hall used to have a segment in his nightly talk show. Uh, Arsenio Hall, for those of you who may not know, uh, is a comedian. Um, and he's the actor playing opposite Eddie Murphy in those Coming to America movies. Well, at one point, he had a late night talk show. Uh, I think it was called like Late Night with Arsenio Hall or the Arsenio Hall Show, one of the two. And he had a segment where he'd say things, things that make you go, hmm. So every now and then we'll think we're done with the show. Again, the collective we, because none of us do this alone. And I am no exception. We'll think we're done and then something will happen and say, hmm, maybe that needs to be added because I've just got so many things this week that I want to talk about. Everything from uh, NASA promising transparency, right? And their House Oversight Committee talking about uh, the latest with unclassified uh, phenomena. Ooh, uh, also a new poll I'm talking about today uh, where, get this, 50% of young adults still live at home with their parents. What? What? Who are these people? Are you one of those people? Uh-oh, didn't mean to offend, but I would like for you to email me and tell me why you've made that choice. Coming up, I'll talk about some of the things that I learned along the way because in one of the pieces that I did this week, we talked about that and it was eye-opening for me there. A lot to be revealed. But then I said, ah, that makes sense. There you go. And former D.C. Democratic Party Chairman Scott Bolden chatted with me earlier this week. He and Rena Shah, uh, who both just discussed how the no labels uh, uh, movement uh, where 
Hey, it is clear in the polls, people are dissatisfied with both of the leading candidates for both uh, the GOP nomination and the Democratic nominee, President Biden, re, uh, running again for election. That, hey, this third party group is saying, this is the perfect time for us to step in and give the American voter an alternative. Or is it? Ooh, you'll have to hear that conversation. And do you remember Dr. Corey Hebert? Do you remember him? Uh, he's from New Orleans. Or not New Orleans, but he's from Louisiana. Uh, thus the Hebert when his name looked like Herbert, right? I remember the first time I met him because uh, his last name is spelled H-E-R-B-E-R-T. So I'm like, oh, Dr. Corey Herbert. And he's like, Hebert. I said, oh, uh, wait a minute. Are you Creole? Are you from Louisiana? He's like, yes, I am. How did you know? I'm like, well, the minute you said Hebert, of course I knew that. <laughs> the, the whole French derivative of that, right? Uh, because of the whole French influence in the bayou, right? We all know that. Uh, so, yeah, we he's a great guy. He and I chatted about Narcan. Yep. Narcan, why, Nick? Because he's just talking about the latest information with the uh, availability of it being over-the-counter now and why um, this is an important movement in the fight against fentanyl and other drugs that can lead to an overdose. And he breaks that all down. It was a great conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it and respond to that. And Ian Hurd, um, uh, somebody else I spoke to, you know, he is the uh, director uh, for the Weinberg Center for International and Area Studies at Northwestern University. And he and I chatted about uh, funding for Ukraine and his fight against Russia because we know people are tired of it. In fact, we even made the argument or we discussed how it's most likely on the back of most people's minds. And you sit there and you're like, wait a minute, how is that on the back of people's minds uh, that it's not front and center? Because so many other things are happening. Uh, so many other things are happening in people's lives. And, and, and it's just one of those things where you may still have compassion for, but if you're not seeing it every day, it's easier to kind of let it fade into the background. And then uh, also uh, today, something uh, that just floored me, a really good conversation around, get this, cell phone etiquette. What? What, Nick? Yeah. Cell phone etiquette. Oh, it's a thing. Oh, it's a thing. And we will definitely discuss it because Adrian felt one way, Marky felt another. And then I was like, wait a minute. They're both crazy. <laughs> oh, or maybe you may say, no, Nick, you're the crazy one. Because let me tell you something. I agree with Marky or Nick, I agree with Adrian. It's something else that we'll discuss. But let's dive on in because there are a couple of things that I want to start with. And I want to start with that poll that I referenced earlier. A new poll revealed almost 50% of young adults live at home with their parents. In addition to inflation, the pandemic set Americans back in multiple areas, creating a ripple effect on the job market and income. So to learn that so many young adults are now living with their parents, it shocked me. Uh, and the conversation was interesting. And I, yeah, it's one of those things I said, oh yeah, this is definitely something I need to share. Young adults finish college, the next big step is usually moving out of their parents' home and getting a place of their own. Some may call it adulting, right? Well, according to statistics, some have decided to mm, stay put. 23 million or 45% of young adults ages 18 to 25 live with their parents. Blame it on COVID-19, recession and inflation, to name a few. And who's judging? No one, apparently, because 90% of adults surveyed by Bloomberg say people moving back home are saving up and getting ahead. And it's smart. 
Let's bring in Peter Dunn, CEO of Your Money Line and syndicated radio host to offer perspective on this topic because one of the things Adrian and I were saying is we couldn't wait to move out. We're moving back home to save money. And given the cost of college, given the cost of housing and health care and, and, and slow wage growth, that makes sense. And the second one's even more altruistic than that. It's to take care of mom and dad. So, you know, uh, who are we to judge? Because those are pretty good darn reasons. Yeah, Peter, I think that if we're talking about different factors weighing into it, I think age is one that we can also say. I don't know that at my advanced age, moving back home with mom would be the smartest thing for either one of us. I think that somebody would be choked to death, and probably me, because it's still my mama's house. But is living with mom or dad the new normal? And I guess that's the question I'm asking. And what makes this experience successful for some young adults? I think that we've sort of, we've had this on-ramp to this idea with a couple different factors here. Kids are getting their driver's license later than they used to. You see the reports about people getting married or even dating later than they used to. And then I think there's this idea that parents, since they're helping out with college education so much, even in the forms of Parent PLUS loans, that I... To your point, I think culturally we're sort of getting here. It used to be this way. We're at the highest rate since the 1940s uh, with people living at home. And so I would think at least for a generation, this is the new normal. And part of that is the Gen X parents or arguably young boomer parents accepting this as reality as well. You know, we were talking about saving money, Peter. Um, you know, we talk about financial nihilism or uh, rejecting how one should spend or save money, impacting how young adults are actually living these days. Is the idea of saving money uh, one of the reasons, too, how uh, young adults should be looking at this? Absolutely. Gen Z is incredibly resourceful and very financially responsible. I, I think that's the that's the the moment here it's like hey living mm -hmm. at home is financially responsible and and this generation wants the best for themselves but they do reject the fact that they should own a home they do reject the fact that they should do things conventionally and uh i guess i support it no one cares whether i support it or not let's be honest but it it makes some sense uh, Peter, one last question for you before I run out of time. Uh, when we talk about uh, financially and saving money, uh, and what exactly makes sense to stay with your family and invest in a home, uh, pay off that college debt, or uh, should you be uh, doing something else while you have that time to have that financial cushion? You've got to do something extreme, no matter what it is. I would say at least a third of your income, if you're living with mom and dad, has to go to something big. And I don't mean something fun. I mean, paying off your student loans, mm -hmm. putting money in a savings account or something like that. Because if you don't put at least a third, probably more, probably 40%, you will never move out because you will not have the ability to create that financial independence, at least 40%. And we've talked with you before about how just saving a little bit now down the road, what it could mean in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Uh, Peter Dunn, once again, thank you so much for breaking it down. And I am no longer going to be one of those people shaming those who choose to move back home with their parents. Brilliant. Ain't no shame. Yeah. So when you look at it that way, it can make a lot of sense, right? Um, hey, but I'm going to say this again. If you stand at home with your parents, I agree with Adrian. You need to be paying some rent. You got to be doing something. Have a plan. Don't just be kicking back, chilling, playing video games and going on dates and not taking care of your business. If you're an adult, come on, we got to get together. You're the future. You're the next generation. <laughs> so I need you to do the thing. Mm-hmm.
I had an opportunity to um, speak with Dr. Ian Hurd, who is the director of the Weinberg Center for International and Area Studies at Northwestern University. And he and I were discussing how uh, there is a debate in Washington right now on the amount of money that is being spent on uh, Ukraine and their efforts to uh, defend themselves against Russia. And I asked straight up, hey, is this money that is being well spent? Joining me now to discuss today's meetings more is Ian Hurd, the director of the Weinberg College Center for International and Area Studies at Northwestern University. Ian, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Ian, we just heard Joe talk about how some see it as an existential threat and how it's in our benefit to fund Ukraine. This is one of Zelensky's rare trips away from Ukraine since Russia invaded his country more than 18 months ago. And the second trip to Washington, a government shutdown is also looming. Can he be successful in rallying support at this time? Yes, he can. Zelensky is uh, very effective at making the case that Russian military aggression is uh, is putting millions of regular people at risk and is a, a big danger to his country and to its neighbors. So he makes a very strong case. He's very good at showing how the costs of Russian aggression are being paid by the Ukrainian people and that there's only one way to resist that as far as he knows. Dr. Hurd, why isn't that message uh, translating or uh, being felt with the American people who may be having some resistance? And National Security Council spokesman John Kirby called the Ukrainian president our best messenger in persuading lawmakers uh, and to keep vital U.S. money and weapons coming. What do you think will ultimately be the outcome from today? Well, I think the message is resonating strongly. There are strong majorities in both houses in the U.S., uh, for continuing the support. There's strong majorities in both parties. Really, there's just a small radical wing of the Republican Party that's looking to interfere with that bipartisan agreement. And there really aren't very many of those people, but they do get a lot of attention since they're rather loud. One of the arguments has been made that it's best to uh, fund Ukraine in this war because if they can help us uh, defeat an enemy, it is to the U.S.'s benefit. Now, the U.S. has been one of the biggest backers of the Ukrainian effort, approaching $113 billion, with President Biden asking Congress for another $24 billion. But Republicans are now opposing continued assistance. Can the U.S. keep giving out this money and writing these blank checks? It certainly can. The amount that the U.S. is sending to Ukraine is really just a small piece of the military budget in the U.S., which is something like a trillion dollars a year. So the U.S. can certainly afford to do it. Uh, the real challenge is the fact that it's Russia's aggression in Ukraine that sort of sets the tempo and the scale of the problem. So there's not much hope for relief until the Russian government decides that it's not interested in investing so much in making lives miserable for people in Ukraine. And we don't have any control over that. That's up to Putin and his uh, his political supporters. 18 months in, and it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight. Dr. Hurd, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So we will see what happens as we move forward, how important uh, the money being spent on Ukraine uh, will be as it weighs into, you know, the upcoming election. But uh, as we continue to spend money here on the migrant crisis and other things, you can see how people are uh, frustrated and they're is definitely a need for better communication on how that money is being spent and tracking it if elected leaders really expect Americans to get behind the millions and millions of dollars being spent. And when we talk about uh, the frustration that many Americans are feeling um, is another reason why you can understand how 
um, this political action group that you may or may not have heard of called No Labels, um, how they are rising up to possibly, you know, present to American voters an alternative to uh, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump uh, because uh, national polls suggest that those who vote are not excited about either. Well, I had an opportunity to speak to Scott Bolden, who is the former D.C. Democratic Party chair, and Rena Shaw, who is um, a, a strategist, to just ask them, hey, what's the deal? First of all, who are no labels and, and why is this a thing? And recent polling finds many Americans do not want a rematch between President Biden and the former president, Mr. Trump. And that's raising questions over whether a third party bid could actually be viable next year in next year's election. The centrist group No Labels reportedly registering 15,000 new voters in Arizona, a state that Mr. Biden won by just 10,000 votes in 2020. And while No Labels won't decide on whether to back a presidential candidate until after Super Tuesday, Democratic-linked groups are already looking to derail their effort. Sources telling Politico, quote, a powerful network of liberal donors is joining the push to stop No Labels, warning major political funders to stay away from the group. Let's bring in Scott Bolden, former D.C. Democratic Party chair, and Rena Shah, the Republican strategist that we all know and love here on uh, Morning in America. Uh, Scott, I do want to start with you. Do you think pressure from these Democratic groups like Third Way and Move On will force no labels or its donors to back down or to even let us know who these donors are? Well, that remains to be seen. I think this is a pro, pro, um, this is a protection, if you will, for what might have been. My sources at No Label, No Label says this is they they're enjoying the spotlight, they're enjoying this discussion. But in the end, all the the only thing that matters is do they put a candidate on or not. If it's a Republican, they're going to pull from the Republican ticket. If it's a Democrat, they're going to pull from the Democratic ticket. And historically, uh, whether it's No Labels or third party candidate. They've done nothing but be a spoiler, whether it's Ross Perot and others. And so uh, this is interesting. There's unreadiness in regard to both candidates. But in the end, voters are programmed to vote for a Democrat or Republican. And if Joe Biden is on or if Trump is on that ticket, Republicans are going to vote for Trump and the Democrats are going to vote for Biden. And all that matters is that who gets one more vote than the next. I don't think a third party candidacy, no matter what the unreadiness is, is going to be a real factor in 2024. Marina, Marina, most talk of it being a spoiler has come from Democrats. Is it too early to assume that Democrats would be the ones harmed in a third party bid uh, when we're seeing a contentious GOP primary where many voters of the candidates who lose may be tempted to look at a third party? Well, when you hear the folks from No Labels speak, particularly beloved folks like former Governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan, they talk about supporting centrism and bipartisanship. That on its face sounds really great to people like me who don't want to see Donald Trump take the White House again. But I'm also sitting in a moment where a great many of my peers and I criticize President Biden and feel that he doesn't deserve to win the White House again. So you've got high levels of dissatisfaction with the current occupant, the immediate former occupant, what do you do? You think about a third party option. But in modern times, we've seen that that's just not viable. No Labels is trying to say, hey, it's a real possibility this time because you guys don't want a Biden-Trump rematch. But then again, they haven't gone as far as to say this is 
who we'd tap, and this is how we'd really get there. But looking at their strategy so far, it's really important to recognize one thing, and I'm really speaking to the folks who are in the center here, and there are a great many Americans who are. This is an anti-democratic effort, and I'm not talking Democratic Party. I'm talking anti-democracy, because what No Labels strategy would do, very plain and simple, is that they would siphon votes from Joe Biden and give the White House back to Trump. That's really important to recognize. They don't have a very clear path to victory. Their, their path relies on taking votes in certain places. And it's really, to me, nonsensical, but also nonsensical to numerous groups who polled and seen their strategy. It just doesn't add up. And not adding up also, Scott, Rena just um, touched on that. No Labels chief strategist says Democrats are being hypocritical by trying to stop No Labels from getting on ballots. Is that type of a, a move really pro-democracy? Um, you know, I don't have a problem with uh, No Labels thinking about fielding a third candidate. I have more problems with the results of it. But here's why mm -hmm. No Labels... They'll never get to field a candidate if they if they are committed to not being a spoiler. The majority of the Democratic Party, the majority of the Republican Party are moderates. They're centrists, actually. The the far left and the far right are what you hear about and what the media covers, but most Americans are centrist. They want Congress to work, they want the president to work with Congress, and they want to get things done, and that means compromise. So these parties, uh, why would they leave their parties and go for a third label simply because they don't like the candidate? when most of them are moderates. If, if that's the case, then no labels is only going to be a spoiler. If they're committed to what they say, they don't want to be a spoiler, then they're not going to field the candidate. Even if they get on the ballot in 50 different states, after Super Tuesday, it's going to be too late for them to be anything but a spoiler. Just remember, in the end, voters, you, you're the ones who will decide. Forget pundits, forget people you see and hear on TV. You have to go into that booth and you have to decide what works best for you and your families. And it's a decision um, that uh, many will, will weigh out over the next coming months. And um, in the end, let's just hope that collectively uh, we can all continue to grow uh, and prosper together. I've asked you this before. Do you believe there's something out there? Or are we alone? And do you think aliens are watching us? Do you think they're watching me right now record my podcast? And if so, what are they thinking? <laughs> I know I'm whispering because if I if I'm not alone, if we're not alone, I don't want to offend them. But I'm gonna tell you this too. If we're not alone, I don't know that I want to know. I don't want you appearing and showing me your face. And yeah, Nick Pope and I discussed that, the transparency or lack thereof from NASA. What do they know and what aren't they sharing? And should we know? Hey, Congress is working to find hard evidence of alien life and they're promising transparency to the public. So why was this week's House Oversight Committee hearing with NASA behind closed doors and shut off to the media? Well, several people on social media posed that very question. Congressman Tim Burchett says he was disappointed and suspicious of some of NASA's answers. Take a listen. Everything is available from NASA. They have no secret stuff. And then we said, well, wait a minute. You mean 
I mean, you know, the satellites still. And they kept saying, no, everything's open. As far as they knew. As far as they knew. Well, let's bring in Nick Pope, former UK Minister of Defense, uh, working for the Minister of Ministry of Defense. Uh, Nick, you know, you and I have talked about this before. We've touched on this before. The public is upset the meeting was closed. Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee, who is leading the House Oversight Committee, is frustrated. Is NASA sending mixed messages? They are, yes. I, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for NASA on this. I think they're trying to do the right thing, but they've had a couple of missteps over the last few days. When they had their meeting to announce their report, they said they'd appointed a director of research, and then they refused to name him, and then they named him a few hours later because of the backlash. And, and then, of course, we had this, this session yesterday in the House Oversight Committee closed to the media and the public. Now, some sessions are closed, that's fine, but when your whole central point is about openness and transparency, yes, it absolutely sends mixed messages. Uh, one of the things I think uh, the problem is, you touched on this, is that either you are going to be clear and transparent from the beginning or say nothing at all. I think it's the back and forth that has so many people frustrated. NASA says it only deals with unclassified data so they can be transparent to the public. Does NASA likely have that data that they just don't want to make public? Well, I think they, they do have some, and they certainly have access to it are working quite closely with the Pentagon's Arrow unit, All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, who has the lead on this. But this runs the risk of a classic left-hand, right-hand situation that NASA say that they're, they're looking for UAP, they're looking for the evidence, they want to look at the data, but they say they're only going to look at the unclassified data, where all the time the DOD and parts of the intelligence community already have classified data that could help NASA. So it's going to take some very careful management to integrate that. And Nick, I'm glad you said that. I've got less than 30 seconds because we already know that some of the information is classified because they have some that is unclassified. How will that affect uh, NASA as they move forward? Well, I think it's going to be a challenge, but I do think they've got to up their game a little bit on this and be open and transparent, as they've said they'll, they'll be. And, and the Pentagon has to do the same. Nick Pope, is there life out there? Yes. Nick Pope, thank you so much for joining us this morning. So as data becomes more available and so many things are unclassified, you better believe stories like this will definitely continue. The availability of information is um, a theme because that's also um, partly the reason I included the story around Narcan. Uh, availability. That's the theme, right? Um, uh, Narcan, of course, is a drug that can help to uh, reverse the effects of an overdose. And uh, the there's an argument or a discussion around, uh, floating around that, hey, availability of Narcan will increase the number of overdoses. And I'm not a medical expert, but I knew to lean on one. And Dr. Corey Abair, um, who works in this space, says, Nick, Absolutely not. Just because you have something that can prevent a tragedy does not mean uh, that more tragedies will occur. It just means that you'll be ready in the event of an emergency. And he and I had an opportunity to talk about why it may be in everyone's uh, best interest to have uh, over-the-counter Narcan on the ready. Now, according to the CDC, more than 100,000 people died of overdoses last year. 
So will easy access to Narcan help to solve that problem? Joining me now is Dr. Corey A. Bear. He's a physician with the LSU School of Medicine. Dr. A. Bear, you and I have talked many times on different topics. Uh, let's talk about this Narcan situation. Why would the FDA go against the majority of votes uh, in this particular case? You know, I think it's kind of one of those same kind of situations where you don't want to, you know, have birth control over the counter because it's going to make people uh, go have a bunch of sex unprotected. That's just not how it really works out. We know that people are dying from overdose. They need to have their ability to save their lives and, and, and their families' lives. I mean, it's, it's kind of like... You know, it's like a no-brainer that this should go. And I, I always think that there's a little something else brewing when something like this is so overtly being uh, uh, being put against other folks. To You know, people can't come together on this. I think that there's something very fishy about this, and I think it's probably going to come out in the next month because when we're looking behind the scenes, when we monitor this stuff all the time, this it doesn't make sense with all of the opioid overdoses out there. Dr. Bear, I spoke with a medical professional a couple of weeks ago about this very topic, and she suggested to me at that time, she says, you know what, Nick, I'm buying it so that I can keep it in my purse and have it on the ready. In fact, it will be part of my first aid kit. I was almost dismissive of that. I'm like, I'm not in those neighborhoods where that would be something I would need. And she made it clear, it's not about that. It's about being ready should an emergency happen because you never know, and you should have it on the ready. Dr. Bear, can someone take too much Narcan and should one just have Narcan on the ready for an emergency situation? Yeah, people should have it on the ready in any type of emergency situation. Just like, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, Damar Hamlin, right? The reason why he's alive today is because there was an AED on the ready. Right. Things happen all the time. So, you know, you might be at a restaurant, you might be anywhere. And just because that person you might think may not be worthy of saving because they are on a medication that I mean, on a, an illicit drug, they could also be on a medication. Think about a patient that has sickle cell disease and is taking some type of medicine and that is a narcotic for sickle cell pain. And then they have an overdose because for whatever reason, they took too much. That could happen anywhere. So we never should hold back life-saving treatment because we think that it might make people start using the thing that might kill them. I mean, that that's just, that's ludicrous. And quickly, Dr. Bear, you cannot take too much Narcan, or can you? No, I mean, at, at certain points, I mean, you know, you can take too much water. I mean, to be honest with you, and die. But no, we actually have the ability to monitor the amount of Narcan, and it is generally pre-filled. Dr. Corey Bear, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And just so you know, we found that it's about 50 bucks a dose. So um, believe it or not, you know, one of those things where you may want to uh, speak with your employer about having one in your emergency kit, uh, your first aid kit at the office, uh, because I know that there's a move here where I work uh, to make sure that we have it, because as we've learned, Narcan can reverse the effects of an overdose or a reaction uh, that is beyond opioids. It can also work for someone who may be suffering the effects of a diabetic medication or something uh, reacting in their system. Um, and I loved how, you know, Dr. Bear made it clear that it may not always be something nefarious. You know, the whole idea is to simply be ready. And being ready. Ooh, this is me making a transition. Being ready makes me also think about being on call, being available, or 
being accessible because this is where we had a good old time on Morning in America. There is a um, article that focused this week on cell phone etiquette. So I guess somebody asked Miss Manners, or is it Miss Manners? You all remember Miss Manners or Dear Abby? Dear Abby, what should I do with such and such? Or Miss Manners was always um, uh, letting us know uh, the proper uh, decorum one should employ when in different settings. Well, cell phone etiquette is indeed a thing, as we all know, because we've all been in that space where somebody is using the speakerphone, okay, when you're in the grocery store or you're in some public space and they're, I told blah, 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 and you're like, really? Do I really need to hear this whole conversation? Who does that? Who are you people? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm now I really want to know who are those people? And what do you do when you see them or hear them do that? Do you give them the stink eye like I've been known to do? Like, what are you doing? Or I'll tell you what I've done, and this is no lie. I have been in spaces where people are on the phone like that, talking really loud. I look directly at their phone. Not eye contact with them, but I look directly at the phone, making it clear that I'm uh, listening or listening in uh, to something, or will look like I'm scribbling notes on something that they're saying, and they, they tend to be offended, like, excuse me, this is a private conversation, and I'm you a, a tune it out, I'm just sitting there, mm, like I'm writing something, like I'm getting an idea. And they're usually like so offended, like how rude that you would eavesdrop on my conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, since you put it out there, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Well, with Apple introducing video voicemails and new texting apps uh, that seem to be launched every day or every time I do an update on my phone, uh, one of the things we wanted to talk about were the do's and don'ts of phone etiquette and uh, and how, honestly, it's becoming more complicated by the minute. So we started with a clip from Mean Girls that everybody recognizes from the movie, and then we discussed it uh, on the other side. If someone said something bad about you, you'd want me to tell you, right? No. What if it was someone you thought was your friend? What are you... Hold on, other line. I'm not taking this anymore. Good for you, Gretchen. Hello? Let's go out. Okay, hold on. I'm on the other line with Gretchen. Don't invite Gretchen. She's driving me nuts. So if you've seen Mean Girls, you all remember this scene, the iconic four-way call. Phone calls have been around for 150 years almost, but technology has certainly changed how we make them. And what is appropriate, what people yep. want to actually do on their phones. Uh, one etiquette expert released a way to navigate phone calls this year, uh, depending upon your relationship, your age, or context of the call. Number one, never leave a voicemail. I guess that's true of every era of people. I have people in my life who are in their 70s and they're in their 20s, will not check their voicemail. Uh, don't that's text before calling. Really? Or do text before calling. You do want to text before calling. Just give somebody a heads up. Yep. You don't need to answer the phone, uh, meaning you know it's not rude to send a call to voicemail. Emotions are for voice, fax, and text. I don't know what that means. Those oh, emojis. call if you have something exciting to say. Mm. I guess. And don't use speakerphone in public. <laughs> Start screening calls again. What does that mean? I mean, doesn't everybody screen their call now that you see the number pop up, whether you recognize it or not? Yes. Yeah. I am one of the, I do not listen. I have 233 unlistened to voicemails. You're kidding. No. How is that possible? 50 unread texts. I'm just, I am not a phone communicator. What do you do? What? what? That would I, so who are all these people that you don't get back to? 
Uh, a, a, a medley of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A mix. I'm not going to name any names. 200 <laughs> unlisten to voicemails. Who the heck is calling you and leaving you a voicemail and you don't listen? I mean, for a year? You know she okay. won the lottery, but she doesn't know. She <laughs> but I don't know about it. Yeah. No, I checked those tickets. All um, right. Well, I hope you're answering your calls and I hope they're pleasant. <laughs> Still a lot of big headlines you, to get to here on Morning in America right now. Holler. Just holler. How do you have that many text messages on your phone, Marky, and voicemail messages, Marky, that you have not checked? Oh, my God. That would drive me crazy. I, I, I'll share this quick story with you guys. Um, I rem Once upon a time, I worked at Apple, and uh, I had left my former station in San Francisco, and I was working at Apple, one of my favorite jobs ever. Well, along the way, you learn different things. Um, uh, while working for Apple, uh, particularly around, you know, uh, helping to clear space in your phone, this day and the other. And we were working on a particular program at the time. Um, and uh, a colleague of mine had uh, like 300-something messages on their phone. And I offhandedly said, oh, my God, all those messages on that phone would drive me crazy. Without missing a beat, she looked right at me and she said, good thing this ain't your phone. My face hit the floor. I was like, you know what? There you go. Nicholas, stay in your own lane. Mind your own business. Because that's exactly what it was. She was absolutely right. That was not my phone. So I did not have to worry about it. To the point where I am not a fan of multiple apps. If I don't use the app, I don't need it on my phone. I clear it. I also don't like multiple screens of apps. Have you ever uh, picked up a friend's phone, your partner's phone, your spouse's phone, your girlfriend's phone? And they, they got swipe, 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 page after page of apps. That, too, would drive me bonkers. So I have condensed all of my apps. I don't have, but I have a single page of apps. And if it's not something I use regularly, it ain't on my phone. Just as simple. Don't need it. Don't need it. Don't need it. So uh, the close that out. Listen. I'm going to tell you how this works. This is uh, <laughs> this is how it goes, as said by Nick Smith, right? Text someone if you plan to give them a call. I do feel like a phone call is rude or disruptive. That's me. So I will always let a call go directly to voicemail unless it's an emergency or someone I'm expecting a call from. In fact... The latest feature, iOS 17 on the phone, it may have even happened before this version. Unless the number is programmed in your phone, it automatically rolls to voicemail. Like my phone doesn't even ring. So there are times when I'll get a call from one of my producers that, with whom I may work, who is not steward in my phone. It will roll right into voicemail and I'll miss that call that I have to see the alert on my phone that I missed a call to go and check um, the voice message to uh, actually get that call. So if there's something you want to say um, that you're excited about, uh, I say send a voice message or my preferred method is a video message. All of my friends know they can expect that from me because not only do I feel more comfortable speaking directly to people, I think tone and tenor can help to convey the true meaning of my message.
I can say to you, uh, are we doing dinner at 4 o'clock, like we said? To text that, if it's not read the way you may have uh, uh, received it in the way that I meant it to be, it could sound sarcastic. Well, we said we were doing 4 o'clock. Why wouldn't we be doing 4? Why are you asking me that now, Nick? Um, or is Nick going to be late? Is that why he's asking? But if I send a voice message and you see the animation in my face and you see uh, the t you hear the tone and tenor, are we still doing dinner at four like we said we would? And maybe I'm doing the uh, a wink and a smile. They're like, okay, he really excited about dinner at four o'clock. All those things to me help to um, not only illustrate and demonstrate my personality. My friends know me. Uh, they expect that from me. So a voice message when it's emotions. When is just facts, I say text it. Uh, four o'clock, pick me up at the studio. Got it. He told I knew I'd be picking him up at some point. Nick told me to be there at four o'clock. Bam. That's clear. No need to do video and all that. Just simple to the point. And, and rarely, rarely would I recommend you leave a person a voicemail. No one wants to go back and be uh, burdened with checking a voice message unless, of course, again, this is something that just rolled into that area. Uh, but the, the simple truth is most people, I believe, or Nicholas, what Nicholas prefers is a simple uh, text that I can check at some point because also my phone does not beep or chirp. I have to actively look at my phone to see if I have a message. Uh, mine doesn't beep or chirp because of the settings of my phone. And because I'm in the studio, I never want it to go off during a broadcast. So I check my phone when it is convenient for me to do so. So I guess the rule of thumb would be leave a message or a notification for someone in a way that doesn't disrupt what it is that they're doing so that they can genuinely be excited to hear from you. Ooh, see how we did that? That's how we do that, because I'm excited to hear from you. So keep those emails coming, keep those text messages coming that tell me about different things you wanna see and keep sliding those DMs. You know I love that stuff. That's why I do In The Mix. Don't forget, you can watch me and my Morning in America family on News Nation weekdays starting at 6 a.m. in the East, 5 a.m. Central. And if you don't know where to catch us, you can always go to www.joinnn.com. You'll see a drop-down box. That's where you enter your zip code, and the channel finder will show you the broadcast channel in your area. But we're also on all the streamers, Hulu, Roku, YouTube TV, as well as Amazon Alexa and Apple CarPlay. This is Nick Smith, and thanks so much for joining me for this edition of In The Mix with Nick Smith.